good morning. It's good to be here. Good to be here in person. It's been a long time since I've been here in person and not just in spirit. Yeah, it's uh, been a crazy year and uh, I am exhausted right now, physically, but mentally, emotionally. So much stuff is going on for me in the past two weeks. And then, of course, uh, Eric is like, hey, you want to preach? I'm like, no, no, not at all. But God was like, yeah, you should. So I said, yes. And uh, in the midst of that, all the things going on with work, with just the country, with personal things within my heart, God thinks now is the time to take out a scalpel and start scraping away at my opinions and my ideas about a lot of things. And it has been very uncomfortable. So it might become uncomfortable for you as well this morning, and uh, I will not apologize for that. But anyways, let's get into this. As Dick said, we're on a series on Vineyard Values, and Dick started on the first value a few weeks ago, partnering with the Holy Spirit, and then Martha picked it up, um, experiencing and worshiping God. And last week, we had kind of a break missionary John Lutz came in and he was talking about missions, but really he was talking about cultural relevance as well, which is another vineyard value. So we might return to that at the end of this series. We'll see. And today, the value that I'm going to be talking about is reconciling people with God and creation. To start, let's just read what the vineyard itself says about that value. This is straight from their resources. Jesus is reconciling humans to God, to each other, and to the entire creation, breaking down divisions between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Therefore, we are committed to becoming healing communities engaged in the work of reconciliation wherever sin and evil hold sway. We seek to be diverse communities of hope that realize the power of the cross to reconcile what has been separated by sin. So, what does it mean to be reconciled to God? Reconciliation, in broad terms, means restoring relationship. When you reconcile with someone, you resolve the issues that had you at odds with them. And so the reasonable question for someone to ask is, if I need to be reconciled to God, why was I at odds with him? And the standard Christian response to this is that your sins, the wrong things you say and do, separate you from God, and you need those sins forgiven through Jesus to restore your relationship to him. And that is true. Scripture speaks of having your sins removed, blotted out, taken away, but there's far more depth and beauty to the story than that standard description would give you. Something it leaves out, for example, all throughout the Old Testament, sins were forgiven. People made sacrifice, and their sins were taken away from them. So if sins could be forgiven, these bad actions could be forgiven through sacrifice, why did Jesus need to come and be sacrificed? This could be a deep theological dive, and we're not going to dive that deep today. We're just going to tread some water in the shallow end and just briefly touch on it, because I think it's important to lay the groundwork for the trajectory we're headed in. And like most important questions, we find our starting point in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, you can turn there if you'd like, or just follow along. It should be up on the screen. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26 and 27. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We see our original identity and destiny in those verses. To be like God, our identity. And to have dominion over the earth, our destiny. It was a good design, but as we all know, it doesn't stay that way. The devil enters the picture and Adam and Eve sin. And everything changes. Not only do we lose our dominion over the earth to the devil, but we lose our identity. We begin to reflect sin instead of reflecting God. Humanity's problem isn't so much that we commit sinful acts. It's that our very being has become sinful. If the problem were merely bad actions, then that problem is external. And if you worked hard enough, then you could be acceptable to God. But you read the Bible and you know that <laughs> that doesn't work out. Even the greatest people, like David, they just couldn't measure up in their own merit. And while God set up systems of forgiveness throughout the Old Testament, ways of cleansing those bad actions, it could never cleanse who we were on the inside. No amount of good works, good intentions, behavior modification, sacrifices for sin, could change the fact that humans are broken on the inside. God looks down and says, Josiah, you're broken. That's why you have to die. That's a little tongue-in-cheek, but yet not really. We're going to turn to Romans 6, starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall sure, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died of Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Paul uses this language over and over throughout the New Testament, that we died with Christ, that our old self died. Not dying, died. Jesus brought our old nature with him to the cross, and when he was resurrected, we were raised into new life with him. The gospel message is that we're new. Our likeness is restored. We can reflect God again. Sometimes we don't, but we can. And this is what we're talking about when we say be reconciled to God. It's not just that Father God was ready to smite us, and now he's appeased. It's that our very identities, the way we were meant to be, it's given back to us. We can be like God sees us again. And that's good news. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. This is our key scripture on this topic. These are probably some of my favorite verses in all of scripture, really. So much depth here. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 15 to 20. From now on, 
we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know you have a ministry. You don't have to be a pastor or a teacher serving a food pantry or some outreach to have a ministry because it's not based on your career, your professions, or even your skills. It's based on what's been given to you. We've been reconciled to God. That's good news. And you can show that the other people that this reconciliation is not only possible, but it's close at hand. God is right there for anyone who asks. People need to know that. Many people don't know that. A question for you. Have you ever had this type of confrontation with a friend or family member? You get into an argument, you're getting into it about something, tensions, and then it sort of smooths out. And time goes on, but you still wonder, are we good? Are we okay? Because we talk and it seems like something's different, like you, you holding something against me. <laughs> Not knowing where you stand with someone is uncomfortable. And many people don't know where they stand with God. They've heard all kinds of things about God, many of them from well-meaning but misguided Christians, and they don't know what to believe. Some people think God is mad at them. Working at the food pantry here, I've had multiple encounters where when I ask, may I pray for you, the person responds with something akin to, no, you don't know what I've done. To which I reply, no, you don't know how good God is. What we just read in scripture, God not counting their trespasses against them. People need to hear that. People need to hear that God isn't keeping score. Another time, oh, another sin, it's piling up. He's not like that. And yes, there's consequences for our actions. We all know that. But we aren't in the last day of judgment yet. God isn't ready to pour out judgment. He's ready to pour out mercy. In Christ, we never have to wonder where we stand with God. We can approach him with confidence anytime, no matter how filthy we feel, anytime. And that's a message worth sharing. Uh, you know, sharing our faith can be difficult for a lot of us. Maybe it's because so many times there's, there's so much that can just trip us up. You ever talk to somebody and they're talking about an issue and you're like, hmm, consider God, and they bring up dinosaurs and how old the earth is and all kinds of stuff that just end the conversation. Navigating these conversations can be tricky. We have to realize there are many stumbling blocks people can trip over on their way to Jesus. We won't turn there, but in Acts 15, 
a council of elders and apostles of the faith are gathered together to discuss the recent conversions of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. This was new, and the Lord was showing his church that the gospel was for everybody. And the Apostle Paul, or Apostle James, says this, and I quote one translation. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Most translations say we should not trouble them as they turn to God. In order to not make it difficult, the only things this council of believers decided to relay to these Gentiles as far as doctrine were some dietary restrictions and staying away from sexual immorality. I feel like there's a lot more to life than those two things. But in that moment, that's what they decided was relevant for those people in that moment. Doesn't disqualify everything else we can talk about. That's what was relevant right there. We don't want to overwhelm someone with religious dogma. Is doctrine important? Absolutely. We all have theology whether we realize it or not. It's important to remember though that our doctrine is not the gospel. A set of rules is not the gospel. The gospel is literally the good news of Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. I want to recommend a book to you on that note. Speaking of Jesus by Carl Menderes. This has been one of the most influential books of my life. As one individual reviews right here on the back. You may not agree with everything in this book. I don't. But you will be moved by it as I was. Carl's way of speaking of Jesus is immensely attractive. This can change the way that you talk about Jesus. Carl Menderes talks a lot in here about the distinction between sharing Jesus and sharing Christianity. Christianity can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, and that isn't necessarily a good thing. We can get caught up in trying to defend and explain a religion when God never asked us to do that. He asked us to be a witness for Jesus, not for Christianity, not for all these other things, good as they may be. Carl says this, what if our complicated explanations about theology are wrong, not because they are incorrect, but because they do not constitute the person of Jesus? That has enthralled me as of late, that I could be speaking the truth and still be wrong because I left Jesus behind. I mean, almost any man in a committed relationship can tell you, yeah, just because what you're saying is true doesn't mean it was the right thing to say. You just ask. Yeah, you know it's true. You know it's true. What? Honey, you just asked what I thought. What's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> On this point, Carl describes how when discussing the Christian religion, people are turned off instantly all over the world. But when speaking of Jesus, he draws them in. And he has some great stories precisely of that in his book. Carl spends time in the Middle East, and Muslims, when you speak certain Christianese language, immediately associate you with Western imperialism. 
You're here to put your culture onto me. But Carl shows them Jesus in a light that they understand and are drawn to. He doesn't compromise the gospel in doing this. He simply speaks of what is relevant for them to hear and lets the Spirit of God do the rest. This train of thought connects to another vineyard value, culturally relevant mission. We're not getting on that train, but I bring all this up to make this point. You don't get a free pass simply for speaking the truth when you cause someone to stumble. Now, it is, it is true. Some people will always stumble. Jesus knew exactly what to say, and people were still offended at him. That's true. But that's not what we're talking about here. In 2 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, For he, that is God, says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle some translations say stumbling block, in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. Remember your ministry to help reconcile people to God? When your witness to someone about Jesus is compromised by your loyalties to anything other than Jesus, that's fault. Maybe you know someone like this. They've rambled on about the same opinion so much that even if they say something true, you just can't hear it. <laughs> Once someone sees you this way, it's hard to come back from that. People come to my mind, followers of Jesus. And when I think of them, you know what I don't think of? Jesus. You know what I do think of? Angry Republican. Crazy progressive. Narrow-minded and hard-hearted. In this moment of time, I can't think of a bigger stumbling block than politics. I want to talk a little bit about that today and then tie it back in with our subject matter here. Our election is in two days. The air is thick with tension. In the past few months, I've heard people say, well, once the election's over, then it'll settle down. I'm like, Keep dreaming. It's been an intense year, and it's only going to get more intense from here. So what do we hold to in the midst of that? There's a few things that I think are beneficial for all of us to remember. The first is that God is on the move. Amen. If you only watch the big news sources, you get the impression that it's chaos everywhere. The whole country is just tearing at the seams. But that's not the full picture. Just one example for you this morning. Sean Fjoit, maybe that's how you say his name, worship leader and missionary, he recently headed up an event in Washington, D.C., not even a week ago. Close to 40,000 believers joined in person and hundreds of thousands live-streamed from around the world coming together to worship and pray for our nation. Healings, miracles, salvations, you name it. Did you hear about that? <laughs> yeah, he's a good guy. I follow a wide variety of people and news outlets, and the only place I heard that from was from him, because I follow him. It's evident that God is on the move, except you won't see it if you don't know where to look. So if things look bleak, keep looking. Don't get distracted. There's a lot of distractions here. 
and they're not all practical. Some of them are spiritual. Because second point I want to make, the devil's on the move too. It seems like he's right out there in the open to me, but many people can't see him, the enemy in their midst. As scripture says, we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against spiritual realms, not physical ones. Our enemy isn't a corrupt politician or socialist or a self-serving businessman. So why do we treat them like they're the enemy? Sean Bowles, a prophetic man from out west, says this. So many times we are at war with the people of this world, the people that God loves, thinking we are doing the right thing when we should be at war with the culture of the enemy. Wherever God is moving, there's demonic oppression. I mean, easy to see on a personal level. I haven't even been here that long on this earth, and I see it all the time. God shows you his will. He tells you what you need to do. And what happens? The enemy is right there, tripping you up, giving you excuses, giving you escape routes, because, well, God's will, that's hard, right? Here, take this instead. Anything to keep you from stepping into God's will. Because when you're walking in what God has prepared for you, that's when we change the world around us. Individually and corporately. The Lord is at work in the big picture, and the spiritual powers of darkness are afraid of that. So there will be warfare, and we have to walk through that. God is moving. The devil is moving. And in the midst of that, the third point, we should be involved in our political system. Bill Johnson, senior pastor at Bethel Church, said this in a recent message regarding the importance of our participation in our political system. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's well worth it. Quote, when considering who or what to vote for, we each make choices based on a combination of our personal view on policies, the personality and character of the candidate, and our tradition or upbringing. Each of these value systems must be influenced by our prayer life with the Lord, and we must remain open to change. Which value is he emphasizing for a particular moment in time? Pay attention to his voice as you seek truth and research the candidates and issues at hand. An act of obedience, even as something as simple as filling out a ballot, is the way that God moves through his people, bringing about the principles and values of heaven to earth. He continues, We are called to be salt and light to this world, to bring flavor and a voice of truth to culture. Praying on the sidelines, waiting for a change, while watching others use their voices to shape culture does not fulfill that call. Don't get me wrong. Prayer is vital to shaping culture. We should all be praying for our cities, states, nations, as well as leaders. Yes, even those ones that we don't agree with. But just as faith without works is dead, prayer without action is incomplete. There are people who moan and groan, calling it intercession, but do nothing outside of those prayers to actually make a difference in their own culture. Tragically, for many believers, this downhill slide of society is a fulfillment of their view on the end times. They have more faith in the return of Christ than they do in the power of the gospel. Both are beyond wonderful, but I have a responsibility to bring about change through a life lived in obedience to Jesus. We are here to love, serve, and display the power of God defeating the powers of darkness that rule over people's lives. That is our assignment. We must not simply give in to the trend of a moral decline in society and then call it a sign of the times. 
it is a sign of our neglected responsibilities. We have a part to play, church. Yes, there are times where there isn't anything we can do about things. Sometimes what matters most to us, we don't have a part in. We can only step aside and let God be God. But that is not all the time. Probably not even most of the time. Remember our key verse? God making his appeal through you. The Lord doesn't leave us on the sidelines. He wants us as main players. Some Christians don't think you should mix your faith with your politics. It's true. Some people abuse their faith for their politics. But if your faith doesn't influence your politics, I don't think you have any faith. At least no faith that's worth anything. What you believe about God and what he values, that should very well influence what you value. I think some Christians believe this line of thought of politics and faith because of Paul's words about government, particularly in Romans. We're not going to go into them because it's a different topic, really, obedience to authority. But here's the thing. Paul had no say in his government. Rome did whatever Rome wanted to. We live in an amazing time where we, as individuals, have a voice in our government. We can even participate in our government. Through most of history, humans did not have that privilege. We should not squander it. And with all that being true, I think it's important to remember the reality. The gospel does not depend on the United States. Jesus does not rely on any human government. He uses them, but he doesn't need any of them. I would prefer it if our elected officials weren't hostile to the gospel, personally. But even if, as some doomsayers like to proclaim, the wrong person is elected and our democracy is destroyed, the kingdom of God will keep advancing. Priorities. Should it upset you seeing politicians taking our country down a bad path? Perhaps. How much should it upset you? That's a better question. So while God and the devil and all this spiritual movement is going on, while we should participate in our government, there's a fourth work, fourth point I want to make. Don't compromise your heavenly citizenship for your earthly one. An exaggerated word choice there on my part, but for good reason, I think. You are a citizen of the U.S. or whatever country is your home. Secondly, that is not where you owe your primary allegiance. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All things. I'm going to be frank with you today. I'm confident in doing so because the Lord's been pretty blunt with me. I've been offended a lot recently. And God offended me. That's my problem I had to deal with. <laughs> it's not an understatement to say politics has become uncivilized. It's a rough playground. And on that playground, the world will act as if they don't know Jesus. That's not surprising or even really concerning. They don't know Jesus. 
When people who profess Jesus act like they don't know him either, that's concerning. I see it every single day online. Christians attacking people, insulting others, drawing crude parallels, raising hell quite literally, and then slapping a God sticker on it as if that makes up for their antagonistic behavior. Setting aside their role as an ambassador for Christ to be an ambassador for an elephant or a donkey. <laughs> and for what? To show those idiots how wrong they are? Newsflash. Nobody changes their mind when they're attacked. A few rhetoricals for you. You allow yourself to become infuriated with what a political party is doing. You continue to become infuriated when they do the same thing over and over again. Does hearing a person's name like Trump or Pelosi provoke an emotional response in you? When you see something positive about that name, do you have a deep rising urge to say something against it? Do you feel justified in insulting that name because of how terrible a person they are? Do you regard people according to the flesh, according to the faults you see, or according to what God says? James 3, verses 9 and 10. With it, that is the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. But Josiah, don't you see what they're doing? We've got to speak up against them, right? Well, I guess it depends what speaking out means. We should defend the innocent. We should speak for justice. But when we make them the enemy, that's a problem. You know Christ's mandate? Love your enemies. Yep, that still applies to political opponents. outright shameful what so much of the church is willing to do for the sake of defending America. And I'm ashamed I've been swept up into it myself, letting my opinions and emotions boil over publicly, letting the actions of others get under my skin and dictate how I'm going to act, spending more time reading the news than reading the Word of God, spending more time thinking about what I needed to let somebody know instead of what God wanted them to know. It's so easy to get sucked up into it all. It's easy to lose track of priorities. Remember, God is making his appeal through us. Is there room for that appeal? Leif Petland shared something the other day. He's a minister, evangelist, teacher, awesome guy. And I'll paraphrase it for you here. This is Jesus speaking. Dear church, Kamala Harris is beloved by me. Donald Trump is fearfully and wonderfully made. Joe Biden is important enough that I died for him. Love, Jesus. Does the thought of loving those people offend you? This goes well beyond politics, friends. Anyone of any background, race, sexuality, belief system, anyone should be able to walk through those doors 
and encounter Jesus through us. We stick out our hand because, oh, they're over there on the other side of the fence. Here's the reality of it. We will never reconcile anyone to anything if they don't know that we love them. And trying to show genuine love to someone you take offense at doesn't happen. I've tried. You can fake it and try and act proper, but no, you can't love like Jesus loves when you care more about expressing your point than you do about them. To close, I was recently listening to Phil Strout, national director of Vineyard USA. He was just talking about this year, all the stuff that's gone on, all the craziness, how it affects the church and the vineyard. He said, we got to realize that we are around people who view the world differently than us all the time. Some of them will try and cut us out. If you're online, I'm sure you've seen this. You may have even seen this in person. Someone says, if you're voting for blank, if you support blank, if you think blank, unfriend me. Seems pretty childish, right? Well, I've seen some lofty dissertations on why it's not childish. It's very justified in this day and age. People will try and push you away for having the wrong opinion. And Phil Strout recalls something his, a spiritual father told him a long time ago. When someone draws a circle and excludes you, draw a bigger circle and include them. How do we do that? I don't really know, honestly. I haven't been very good at it lately. And that's beyond the scope of what I'm here to talk about today. But I know this. I must do better. The Lord calls me his ambassador. I will speak on his behalf to someone. I don't want to push those people away because of how wrong I think they are. I want to draw them into this circle, into this newness of life that we have. In these coming days, the world needs that now more than ever. Pray with me. Lord, I'm sorry for getting in your way. I'm sorry that I haven't been the person that you know I am, that you call me to be. Lord, in these coming days, I can't imagine what's going to happen. I only know that it's going to be intense. And I pray a gift of faith on everyone here, that we would keep our eyes on what's important that we wouldn't get overwhelmed with the things in the natural that are happening, whether good or bad, regardless of our opinions. Lord, turn us to you. We need you. And give us love and grace for the people who disagree with us. Give us it even when they slap us in the face. Let us turn the other cheek. Holy Spirit, we invite you here. Bless this nation. In Jesus' name, amen.
Yeah. I haven't been here a while, so I don't know how the prayer teams are <laughs> working. But if you need prayer, if anything has resonated with you, I'm going to be up here. There'll be some other people. And if not, have a blessed day. Vote. And remember your priorities. God bless.